What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, we have singer-songwriter Gordon Lightfoot and also Martha Kehoe and Joan Tassoni, the team behind his new biographical documentary, If You Could Read My Mind. Picking up the pieces of my sweet shattered dream. I wonder how the old folks are tonight Her name was Anne and I'll be damned if I recall her face She left me now knowing what to do Carefree highway, let me slip away on you Carefree highway Hello friends, welcome to the Rhino Podcast Thank you for tuning in. Please don't forget to subscribe and help us with a like and a rating. We really appreciate it. Hey, take a moment today and visit us at rhino.com. This time of year is always jam-packed with killer new releases, and you're going to want to get your hands on some of these fine recordings. I'm excited for this one, The Doors Morrison Hotel 50th Anniversary Deluxe Edition. It's a two-CD, one-LP collection, freshly remastered by longtime Doors engineer and mixer Bruce Botnick, and includes a bonus disc of more than an hour of unreleased studio outtakes from the Morrison Hotel sessions. And the hits just keep on coming. Lou Reed, New York Deluxe Edition. A three-CD, DVD, two-LP, and cassette bundle that includes unreleased studio and live tracks, plus the DVD debut of the New York album concert video. Good stuff. And how about this? The Replacements, Please to Meet Me Deluxe Edition. There's a limited bundle for those of you who pre-order, which includes replications of original promo items, Shirts, stickers, totes, and there's also a cassette tape. You've got to see it to believe it. There's a ton of previously unreleased music on this set, which on a somber note includes the last of Bob Stinson's recordings with the band. Check out all of these titles and more today at rhino.com. It's a Gordon Lightfoot doubleheader this episode. If You Could Read My Mind is the new documentary about Gordon's life and career. And we're going to start this episode off by diving into this new film with producers Joan Tassoni and Martha Kehoe. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast, ladies. Can I get each of you to introduce yourself, please? I'm Martha Kehoe. And I'm Joan Tassoni. And you've made a wonderful documentary about Gordon Lightfoot entitled, If You Could Read My Mind. I'm so glad you made this movie. I want to thank you personally for making it. I think a lot of people realize and recognize Gordon's great talent as a songwriter, but I think this documentary really serves to remind everyone what a huge part of the musical community he is and how extensive and deep-reaching his music has been and continues to be. Well, thank you. <laughs> that's, 
That's very nice of you to say, Rich. And, and obviously, Joni and I kind of feel the same way. You know, growing up in Canada, being our age, Gordon Lightfoot just permeated the whole country. No one could even believe he existed, you know, right. um, because he was just so good. And he spoke to Canadians in such a very organic way. Like, you know, it's just who Gord was. Sometimes when your idols are so there, they become part of the wallpaper. And Joni and I just really felt he hadn't been given his due in a way and that it was time to sort of remind people like he's not just like, oh, yeah, Gordon Lightfoot. Like this guy is really a great, great songwriter, artist, cultural communicator. You know, we, we love it. We, we love the music. One of the things that Martha's always said is that when people ask us, what do you hope people come away from the film with? And she said, well, I hope it makes them go back to his songbook. And, and we've almost universally found that people say, holy, I've been listening to him for days now. And uh, I didn't know he did that song, all kinds of things like that. So it has sparked a renewed interest yeah. in Gordon's music, which we're very happy about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, and he, he had such huge success in the 60s and then the 70s it was like he just exploded even more and became even more popular and he was huge here in the states but i can only imagine how massive he was in canada well you know people are generally bigger in the states than in canada <laughs> just because canada itself is small in, in gord's heyday there was probably 22 million people living here total wow. so and and he's sort of beyond big like, we, this is what we tried to show in the film. It's just like, he's kind of like that guy that comes around with that certain talent at that certain moment. And that can never be redone. It can't be outdone. You know, I mean, Drake, we, we reference a couple of times in the film, because again, in Toronto, that's pretty big news when you have an international artist who's like, yeah, Toronto's great. That's almost right. never happened. So we talk about Drake, but Gord is just that guy talent, who he is, what he was saying, how he sounded, where he went, his drive. He's just unique. Yeah, I thought it was really cool that there was that section in the in the documentary where he drives by and sees the Drake billboard. And yeah. instead of just going, oh yeah, Drake, he really was just so complimentary. I found that so refreshing. A lot of times when somebody gets older, they close themselves off to new music, but not Gordon. No, and uh, Joni, I'm sure... We remember this so well, Rich, because when that happened, we were just kind of driving around on Young Street. We were going to, trying to get him to point out like uh, where Steele's Tavern was, just the geography of that. Yeah. Gord used to have a big billboard at Young and Bloor when he did his yearly Massey Hall concerts. So he used to put a billboard up saying, Massey Hall, we'll see you then, kind of thing. And it was just, again, a very Toronto-y thing. And so then he saw Drake's billboard and he was like, look. There's, there's his billboard. And we were just silent in the car. We just wanted to see what he would say. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, we were sure. so shocked. You know, when he says, have you ever heard of that record? You know, Views from the Six. I was like, yeah, we, we've heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> How cool is that, that? You ever heard that? It's like, yeah. yeah. But it really was such a great moment. And it was also buttoned by, he started the whole thing with, I really love Toronto. For us, that was a little bit of a, a part that we wanted to point out is that, you know, Toronto's really come of age since Gord's time. And there really is a lot to love about it. Yeah. So it's a bit of a love letter there too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know you have some history with Gordon. How did it finally come about that you got Gordon on board with this project? 
Well, over the years, you know, we did a number of things with him because uh, I directed the Juno Awards and Martha produced the Juno Awards, which which is the Canadian equivalent of the Grammys up yes. here amongst, you know, Canada Day celebrations and things like that. Anyway, we sort of developed a trust. He was He was comfortable with us and we'd always sort of talked about it, but he wasn't really ready. And when he was 75, he said, okay, let's do it. And unfortunately, it took us five years to get the funding. He turned 80 the year we did the film. That's how it came. He sort of trusted us and uh, said yes. He really likes Joan a lot. (laughs) (laughs) That always helps, doesn't it? Well, you know what? Uh, He knew both of us when we were from young to now. But Joni is one of the hardest working women in show business. And, you know, Gord loves somebody like that. I'm more like a tag-along. I'm the music nerd, like I'm the nerd. And Joni's the hardworking, like I've got my shit together director. And uh, <laughs> she was cute, she looked good in a pair of jeans and she was a hard, hard woman. <laughs> Somehow I don't get that about you. I think you're a pretty hard worker too. I can just get that. <laughs> I've had to be, I've been working for Joan. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't work for Joan, by the way. She works yeah. with Joan. It's a, a partnership, yes. Yeah. Well, this documentary has, it does have a great vibe to it overall. It's not clinical at all. It's almost like you're hanging with Gordon. Was that conscious or did it just turn out that way? It was very much conscious, wasn't it, Joan? We did several interviews with him. We wanted to spend several days with him so that he felt comfortable. He began to feel very comfortable with our crew. He liked hanging with all of us. We wanted that intimacy. And I think Gord himself wanted also to maybe reveal a little more than he has in his many interviews that he's done over the years. I think he was ready. I think he he wanted to reveal something of himself. Do you agree, Martha? Yes. And he just knew from the beginning that we were going to do what we wanted to do and he was going to let us. Like It was a very unique situation. You know, we thought about so many different ways to make this doc. You can imagine, what tack do we take? What do we show? Will it be this? Will it be that? And we decided to spend a fair bit of our shooting days. People love him. They love his music. So we thought, you know what? Let's just go and that. We'll try to give him his accolades, but we'll try to build it on the music mm-hmm. and the songs. Well, he seems really open and authentic in this, this film. And from what it sounds like, You didn't have to pry this out of him. He really had decided at this point he wanted to just kind of lay everything out and not kind of hold anything back. Yes, he was very generous with us. But, you know, Gord never saw the film before we premiered it on Hot Dogs at the festival with a full audience of about a thousand people. Really? We asked him beforehand. We were finished the film and we said, do you want to see it before everyone else does? And he said, nope, I'm going to watch it with everybody else. That's cool. That's really cool. And very trusting, obviously. He must have had a vibe of how it was going to turn out. No, we were terrified. (laughs) I can imagine. That opening scene where he disparages his own song, uh, Mm -hmm. For Loving Me. Yeah. He was in a very, very bad mood that day. And he was upset that we were going to focus on that song. And he didn't want us to. And we did. That's how we opened the film. That's what you get for loving me. That's what you get for loving me. Everything you had is gone, as you can see. That's what you get for loving me. That's what you get for loving me. We were just literally trying to 
show him clips of his younger self and see what his reaction would be. And I guess we kind of knew on some level it might cause him some pain, you know, because he's just that guy. He, he's, he's that guy. Um, but we weren't prepared for the level of the pain that it caused him. And wow. um, so we were, you know, I mean, we did have a conversation at that time where he said, I don't even know why I'm doing this movie. You know, he was very upset. And I said, well, you know, Gord, it's, it's not really for you. And he said, I know. <laughs> you know, he knew it was for the fans, right? Yeah, sure. So it wasn't about him, really. It wasn't making, we weren't making the movie for him. Right. And so he was like, I know, you know, like, darn it. I wish I was more in control. But on the night of the premiere, right after we had a Q&A, uh, as you do at a, at a festival. And he had never seen the film before. So, you know, we were just like, how is this going to go? You know, <laughs> what yeah. if he hates it? We're in this Q&A. And he said, well, you know, they went deep, but they didn't go too deep. <laughs> well, that was his take on it. We went deep, but not too deep. And we were also happy that he saw it with other people because there was an audible and visible favorable reaction from the audience sure. to so much of the film that he's able to see that people liked it. And his first comment after seeing it to us was too much jawboning and not enough music. But then he saw it a few times and our favorite screening was at his uh, men's club that he goes to. He works out at the gym when, you know, pre COVID unfortunately right. sure. six days a week i mean he was religious about it and so he's known these guys for years and he had a screening for the guys at the club and they howled at everything so <laughs> by the time he saw it with the members of his club he was saying i kind of like the film you know? <laughs> yeah yeah he seems very hands-on in all aspects of his life which is why also we appreciated so much that he gave us so much of his time. And, you know, he wasn't trying to control the film. He let us do the film. And that was really something and something we were really grateful for. Yeah. yeah. I think his voice is so singularly unique, too, in, in his music. And the, the melodies he writes are so memorable. And then the fact that he can pair words that are compelling with these melodies, it really... There aren't many songwriters that can do what he does with a song. Before you started this film, how did you think about how you wanted to present him in a way that would do all of that justice? You know what? I, I think part of that revealed itself while we were making the film. You know, making a documentary, it is a little bit like a road trip or something, you know, and it, the experiences that you have along the way create a subtext for the film as as well you right. know what i'm saying sure we didn't want to do a didactic informational documentary and so early on we decide okay we're not going to have a vo we're not going to have somebody saying gordon lightfoot this and blah 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 right. you know yeah and once you do that you've got to look to be very creative in your storytelling i mean having a narrator for some films is amazing it's right for that for this one we didn't feel because we wanted it to feel loose we knew that the number one thing was the music. We have the absolute 100% security of this songbook of his being so damn terrific. Absolutely. And, and so deep and so resonant in very many ways. Yeah. So we thought, let's use the songs as a sort of way into the story because we can't really go wrong with that. I think the way you're talking about how you guys made the movie, in a way, it's like when you write a song, it kind of dictates to you a little bit how it wants to be as it reveals itself. 
And, and in that process, what did you guys learn about Gordon's songwriting process? Well, one thing I learned, and I think that for a lot of songwriters, the lyric comes first, but for Gord, it's always the melody and the arrangement that comes first and the lyric second. So I found that interesting. I, I hadn't rocked to that before we did the film. Yeah. There's a certain part, and it's in, it's in a part of the film where we're talking about his songwriting, where he says, you know, first you have your chords, then you have your melody, then, you know, the lyrics just kind of, you know, sometimes the imagination just does the work for you. And it's like, yeah, it does not for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's like, you just pop into your head, apparently. Another thing that I really learned about him because I'm a music fan that likes lyrics a lot because I'm not terribly musical. I began to realize more and more with Gord that his songs are very much a kind of literature for him. People say, well, like in Sundown, like, who's he talking to? Is he talking to the girl? Is he talking to the guy? Like, who's he speaking with? You know, a lot of times he almost writes the song from a character point of view, as if it's not really about him. He's imagining this guy. There he is in the cabin. He's got some half bottle of whiskey. You know, so he's often writing almost as if he was writing a short story. I can see her lying back in her satin dress in a room where you do what you don't confess. Sundown, you better take care if I find you've been creeping round my back stairs. Sundown, you better take care if I find you've been creeping round my back stairs. And I think that's what Steve Earle points out in the film, too. It becomes a, everyone can do their own interpretation of his songs yeah. because they're not about him. They're, they're universal. That's their universality. That's why they appeal to so many people. People have different takes on the same song. That part where Steve Earle said that, it really resonated with me. And yeah. besides Steve, there are so many other fabulous musicians in this documentary that are, you know, the accolades just keep hitting you. One of the things that was challenging about the film, honestly, in terms of getting people to participate was we made it over the summer. So yeah. uh, people were on tours, like um, Bob Dylan was touring in Japan. So he was um, already over in Australia or somewhere in that part of the world. And also his documentary was being done at the same time, which also covered a lot of that crucial time period uh, where he and Gord, you know, cross paths all the time. And he got to use the footage that was shot at Gord's mansion, the famous party. Which is he got fantastic. In his film and we didn't get to use it in ours. Uh, yeah, but you have some amazing stills from that same night in your film. That's true. Yeah, People need to check did. that out. And yeah. Uh, yeah, that footage where Joni Mitchell is debuting Coyote for everybody at a Thank party God, right? with Roger McGuinn in the back there, just hanging out. Gave me chills. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Speaking of which, where did you guys find all of this amazing footage of Gord playing live, of him canoeing everything from all parts of his life? Well, you know, that's part of the job of doing the doc. And I love the archives at the CBC. You know, when we worked on that country music show, it was for CBC. And I used to get out all the old archival tapes and look at them. So we had a good idea of many of Gord's performances as well. So when we started, we had a couple of visual researchers that worked with us and we just kept digging, you know? One of the pieces that our um, researcher Cindy Wolf found was that piece where Gord is singing inside the riverboat. 
he's singing a song you're probably not familiar everybody's moving you know and it's meant to be it, it works great because it's kind of like when his career starts to, to to move and that is the only footage of him that we've ever seen inside the riverboat everybody's moving moving across the town the skyline grows and the cut of the blues is enough to turn you So we were thrilled when she dug that up. Also, we were very lucky because in the uh, 60s, 70s, during that time, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation also did a lot of documentaries. So we got a lot of that footage from CBC, which, which was a major funder of the film. So you had access to their whole vault, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, so that's where we got him in his basement apartment and a little bit of his parents. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Since I've been researching for this interview and and watching the documentary, I wake up in the morning and bam, there's Carefree Highway. Just like first thing as I'm hitting the floor. It's wonderful because I love all these songs, but they are earworms. They get inside your head and they just, they stick with you. It's a sign of a great song, I think. It is. It's actually really, really amazing how memorable the songs are and how he always has a sound. As, mm-hmm. as you know, Randy Bachman talks about that in the film. He, he has a sound, so he changes things up. Every song is so individual in a way. The Good Brothers, who appear in the film, have you ever heard of a Canadian band called the Sadies? Yes, absolutely. John Doe did a fabulous record with them. Yeah, the Sadies are actually the sons uh, the Bruce Good. Get out of here. That's fantastic. I didn't yeah, know yeah. The Good Brothers have been very, very close with Gord uh, over those years. You know, they're good friends of his, and he used to have them open for him and such. And they told us the story of him writing 10 Degrees and Getting Colder. They were in San Francisco, and they were driving in a limo up to Northern California. They were going to stay somewhere up there. And they were drinking. They were saying, you know, the limo was filling up with cans of beer. They went by a hitchhiker. He was standing by the highway with a sign that just said mother. And Gord said, that sounds like a song. And right then and there, grabbed a piece of paper and wrote like a huge bunch of lyrics that became 10 degrees and getting colder. You know, the rest of us would be like, huh, weirdo, and carry on. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, exactly. And then they put it in the glove compartment of the limo and they almost let the limo go having forgotten about the song. He was standing by the highway with a sign that just said mother and he heard a driver coming about a half a mile away and he held the sign up high up so no decent soul could miss it it was 10 degrees or cold down by boulder dam that day there are so many amazing songs in gordon's catalog how did you narrow it down to focus on the ones that you used in the film one way you narrow it down is that you've got a good visual copy of the song. <laughs> Some people have asked for specifically why why isn't Carefree Highway in in or what else, Martha? Anyway, uh, Rainy Day People's not in, and a lot of people like that song. Rainy Day People, the songs that on video you've got a good representation of is part of it. For example, those particular songs were left out. Quite frankly, you have to stick to a budget and you, you can only use a certain number of songs or you're going to go over budget. <laughs> <laughs> we all 
also sort of used them to be representational of parts of his story, as, as I said. So we knew early morning rain is very important because it was the, his breakout hit as a songwriter. In the early morning rain With a dollar in my head With a naked in my heart In my pockets full of sand I'm a long way from home Lord, I miss my loved one's soul In the early morning rain With no place to go I think one of the things that really impressed me is how many people have covered so many of his songs, not just a couple of them. I mean, there are a, a, a ton of covers. In the movie, he said somewhere around 150 covers. I don't know, 200. I lost yeah. count. <laughs> That's absolutely amazing. And everybody from Husker Dude to Paul Weller. I'm a huge Paul Weller fan. And to see him playing, I think it was Early Morning Rain, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Our researcher, Cindy, the same woman that found that footage we talked about, was incensed that we were including Paul Weller between, uh, it was between Elvis and Neil Young. And she yeah. was like, he doesn't have the stature of those people. And I said, he does at my place. Yeah, <laughs> right on, me too. <laughs> but it was also to show the range of different artists. I mean, Paul Weller, somebody who's been in a pretty, some pretty specific genres. Yes. And here he is doing Early Morning Rain, you know? Yeah. It, it, it speaks to a whole other like headspace and same with you know that's why we thought greg graffin was a great guy to include because he is uh you know he's not uh, a young musician but he has been a very prominent punk rocker really he was very touched when we talked about it because it also reminded him of his his childhood he was a character that we thought would add another flavor of, you know, who's a Gordon Lightfoot fan? Well, here's this guy, been fronting bad religion, and he's quite a character, Greg, so smart and interesting. My 14-year-old nephew uh, really perked up when Greg Graffin came on the screen. (laughs) 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 But, you know, it was meaningful to Greg, and it was meaningful to us that it was meaningful to Greg, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, he reaches a lot of people well, for one thing, his voice is so spectacular. And yeah, unique. Oh, unique, totally unique. That is one thing that popped in my head maybe three times while watching the documentary. And I'm like, Gordon's voice doesn't sound like anybody else. That's, to your knowledge, is that something that he worked at? Honestly, I think everything Gord does, he works at. I don't think there's anything you could say that Gord does not work at. And that's not to say he didn't have natural talent or he, he yeah. wasn't blessed with that voice. Sure. But that guy was singing from the age of six. And he was, you know, in barbershop. He went to school. So he was definitely learning. And I think he was also looking for where he would fit in. Because I think like a lot of artists, you start out and you're kind of doing maybe what's around or, you know, your version of that. And even by that first record, his sound was pretty developed because he had been playing literally night after night for years. What did you guys find out about Gordon making this movie that you didn't know before? I'll tell you something that interested me. We were talking about the Railroad Trilogy. He wrote the Railroad Trilogy pretty young. He's told us that his two little kids at the time were at his feet when he wrote the song, like they were in the room with him. Anyway, 
I said to him, you know, the green dark forest is too silent to be real. Where did that come from? And he said, oh, well, about uh, four or five years before that, I'd gone up in a logging balloon north of Vancouver. And he said, you know, I just never forgot that image, this primordial forest from the sky. And because you were above, you weren't on a highway, it really took you to what that forest would have been like before man. Wow. Gord has almost, I think, a photographic memory, Joni. That's one yeah. thing. I, I mean, he has the memory that I associate with somebody who is a visual artist, actually, because he has pictures that he remembers. And that forest picture came to him. And right. so that's what he does when he's songwriting, too. He draws on these kind of saved images, almost. One thing, too, about Gord is that he is, in my opinion, very generous about other artists. He talks in the film about how you had envy, you know, when he was a younger man. and it, sure. But it just drove him to do better. He was, you know, finished an album <laughs> that he'd had months and months and months of work on, and then the Beatles come out with something and, you know. But he said it just made him work harder. But he respects other people's work. Very much so. I find him very generous to other artists. We're very, very happy that people are liking the doc and especially people that love Gordon are liking the doc because those are the people that Gord wants to reach. You know, we've been happy that young people have responded well to it. We're, we're just very thrilled. Joan and Martha, thank you so much for your time today. What a great conversation. Yeah, yeah. Wow. every Wednesday, Rich. We're always <laughs> right. we're ready to talk music. There was a time in this fair land when the railroad did not run. When the wild majestic mountains stood alone against the sun Long before the white man and long before the wheel When the green dark forest was too silent to be real Platinum selling internationally renowned Canadian singer-songwriter Gordon Lightfoot has won 16 Juno Awards That's the Canadian equivalent of the Grammys. He's been nominated for five Grammy Awards and was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in New York City in 2012. His over six-decade career has yielded 37 charting singles and over 150 versions of his songs have been recorded by other artists like Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, Neil Young, Bob Dylan, Barbara Streisand, and Eric Clapton, just to name a few. We talked with Gordon about his career and his new documentary, If You Could Read My Mind, from his home in Toronto. Gordon Lightfoot, welcome to the Rhino Podcast. Well, thank you very much, Rich. Thank you. Uh, Great to have you. You're such a prolific writer. You've written so many fantastic songs throughout your career. And, of course, the latest thing that's going to be coming out is this wonderful new documentary entitled, If You Could Read My Mind. It's just been released, and it does a wonderful job telling your story. How did the filmmakers pitch this idea of the documentary to you? They had been wanting to do one. It was suggested that I should do one about 10 years ago. You know, I had to think about stuff, and there I was, and finally, it came down to the point where we said, well, we're still all walking around. It looks like we're we're still all walking around, so let's do it. Yeah. And so it was done uh, over a period of about a year. I got involved. I didn't see it until it was finished. 
Uh, what was your big takeaway after you saw it? What did you come away thinking? First thing, of course, that I thought, you know, is that I would have done it differently uh, <laughs> until I had, had seen it three or four times and, and seen it all in context. Right. That the way it was done, it was done the, the right way. You know, it was, I had faith in the people that were doing it and uh, the, the two ladies who did it, and, and I knew I was going to like it. One of the things that I noticed is your affinity for Gibson 12-string acoustic guitars. What is it about the Gibson 12-strings, and 12-strings in general, that you play so much? Well, you know, they have a, a long neck. It's a long neck guitar. It has two extra frets on it. I play capoed music still. I, I don't know very many people who do. There was Joni, there was uh, Steve Earle, there was... Uh, John Prine, there was, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, and having that extra length on the guitar, you know, it was, it, it made sense. And I, I always liked the sound of that instrument as a rhythm instrument. And uh, so I incorporated it into my performances and my recording, you know, where going right back to the start. Well, somebody in the, in the documentary said, you know, he played 12 strings a lot and damned if I'd never heard it out of tune, which is quite a feat. Tuning those things can be a bear. Well, it took a long time for me to learn how to do that uh, also. I've been learning how to, how to deal with the intonation for the last 50 years. I've been trying to get it up to 100%. <laughs> and it's like the Simon and Garfunkel tune that I... They had the, this immaculate tuning on the instruments. Oh, yeah. The tune Scarborough Affair. I've never heard two acoustic guitars that in tune. And I always was striving for that. And uh, about 10 years ago, I started getting it. And uh, ever since that time, it's become another hobby. And so actually, my, my tuning has improved a lot in the last, in the last 10 years. It's got to be bang right on. And you're a guitar player. You know it and uh, yeah. what I'm talking about. And Absolutely. Well, when you're out of tune, it takes you out of your headspace, and you can't perform as well. That's right, and people have crews. People who, who perform in the, like, 12,000, 14,000 people, they need a crew to put that stuff in tune for them. So we don't have to do that. We do our own tuning, although we have 14 people traveling on, on tour. And everybody's working. Like, I'm not talking about bringing people along for the ride. I mean, everybody's got a job and everybody's involved. What was your time like in Hollywood? You went to Westlake College of Music in 1958 to study and you learned how to notate music, make your own lead sheets. What does that afford you that not knowing how to do wouldn't? Well, in those days, back then, when you, when you registered your tunes, first you would send them to yourself by registered mail and leave them in an unopened envelope. I have about, about, about 150 of those floating around. They're in my... Well, actually, they're in my... Uh, my archival thing where those really, really original ones. And then when it gets to the point where you do the second one, it's got to be on, on, on paper and it's got to have the lyrics, the chords, and the, and the music in order to register it with the Library of Congress. Sure, for the copyright. In Washington. So, so I had to learn how to do that. And that's why I went to take the notation course at that school. And at that point of time, we were interested in jazz in high school and we... Uh, used to get a magazine called Downbeat, that sure. which was the jazz magazine at the time. I'm in high school now. I'm talking about. It. We saw the the ad for 
Westlake College, and I talked my parents into letting me go there. And we were not a, a heavily cash-laden family. I mean, we were all working stiffs, you know. Right. And you were 20 years and, old at the time? Yeah, I was, I was about 19, 18 when I went there, 19 when I went there. I took the course. I learned how to write. Everything we did there was based on the keyboard. So that became my, my writing friend, the piano. Well, not long after that, you got cooking as a professional musician. And I know you worked your way through school doing demos. But in 1962, I found this really interesting. You recorded two singles in Nashville at RCA Studio B with Chet Atkins producing. What did you learn working with Chet? I met some mighty fine musicians who came back to work with me later on when I went back there. Charlie McCoy. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Pig Robbins. Uh, sure. Floyd Kramer. Uh, oh. These people got lined up uh, for us by chat through contact here in Toronto. I was working on a television show as, as a choral performer, a singer and a dancer. The guy that ran the show, the music on the show, knew that I was a songwriter. And he knew that I that I sang, and uh, he set this thing up with Chet Atkins for myself and two other artists. An artist from Montreal by the name of Jerry Miller and a girl by the name of Pat Hervey and took us to Nashville, and he got all the musicians lined up through by getting in touch with Chet Atkins. Wow. So I, I only met Chet the one time, and it was... One day he was in the control room. I was coming on like like a cross between Jim Reeves and Pat Boone at that point. <laughs> like I hadn't clocked into the to, to the, the folk revival was just getting started at that point. Yeah. We actually were getting somewhere. We'd already done a session and they'd flown us into New York. Prior to that national, yes, we had we got airplay. We got we got abundant airplay, both of us, Pat Herbie, the girl and myself. Mine went up to number one on the pop charts here. You gotta love that. Boy, that must have felt great. I was 22. I didn't have another hit record for 10 years later. They made five albums on my own before I had my next hit record. But it was a hit also in the United States. So yeah. it was that was important here because uh, if we could make it in the States like Paul Anka, we had some, some people that made that jump across the border and some who did not, and it was important to do that. They actually wouldn't play our product if it wasn't getting played uh, stateside at one point. So we got a Canadian talent ruling. We had a ruling from the government that said that 30% of the uh, records that came out had to be get played in at home in Canada. Yeah, right. And uh, and that that at least gave you the gave you some profile. It was interesting. I I actually popped across there the year. Before they brought that ruling in, I had, if you could read my mind, go up to number five there on the Billboard chart, and which was pretty damn good at the time. That was my first one. But if you could read um, my mind, that was your first big hit. That was a big one. It was just, yeah. it's right there. If you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts could tell. Just like an old time movie. About a ghost from a wishing well In a castle dark Or a fortress strong With chains upon my feet You know that ghost is me That's the one you save till near the end of the show. Sure, yeah. You don't do it right at the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but you save it near near the end of the show because you always got the toe tappers to follow. You know, we've got a layout of material that, for the pacing and everything. It's just possibly about as good as I can get it. Well, you know, obviously your work ethic is still going strong, and in the documentary it says that you painstakingly work over your lyrics, that you really go over it to make sure it's right. How in your mind do you realize, when do you know that a lyric is finished? I, I know when it is memorizable, when it is thoroughly memorizable. There, there's, there's something systematic about it. And uh, then, of course, everything's got to be different, you see. That's part of the challenge, the gift. The gift is the challenge. The challenge is the gift. Everything different. I never knew I could do that. I, when I, after I'd written about, about 20 songs, and I, I, I said, Am I real, are these songs really different from one another? You know, And, they, and they seemed, it seems that they were. You know, and so, they are. Yeah, yeah. So they got to all be different. From, they're like snowflakes. And fingerprints. Yeah, they're like yeah. fingerprints. I like that. Yeah. Can I use that? Yeah, absolutely you can, yes. <laughs> like, your songs are like fingerprints. Yeah. What generally comes to you first? Music, melody, words? What way are they transmitted to you? I don't want to answer this too quickly here. No. Yeah, you can start just with a title. Uh, I've had many that have that started as titles. Uh, having a title like a Carefree Highway. Oh, yes. from uh, seeing a uh, a road a road sign in Arizona. Oh, Carefree Arizona. Carefree Arizona. Yeah. yeah, how about that? Traveling late at night from Flagstaff to Phoenix. I was it went it went flashed by that sign I said there's a song title and I wrote it on the uh, the car contract. We had a rent a car. Oh, sure, yeah. Oh, no kidding. You were looking for some paper. You had to find any kind of paper to write down. That's funny. And uh, we left town and uh, checked in the car, and I left it in the damn glove compartment. But, of course, you couldn't forget it. Yeah, right. You couldn't yeah. forget a title, an obvious title like that. So I was <laughs> back the next week, and I said, i gotta do, I, I got to think about that, that road sign I saw last week in Arizona. <laughs> and there came the song then when I got in the studio I didn't have the guitar part the way Lenny Walker thought that I should do it and he, he taught me he was my producer there he taught me how to, how to play the guitar part <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, I gave it a and, and I was able to, to do it you're an excellent finger picker and you also have a vicious rhythm who were your influences as far as playing guitar? Well, you know, I I love the way Bob Dylan played rhythm folk guitar, and so it was him that I, I actually got it from. And there was another guy, Bob Gibson. Uh, Bob Gibson was another one of the really. He should have been a lot better known than he he was. He's one of those unsung heroes. Yeah. Uh, my goodness, uh, they had a, a songwriting school in Chicago for years. That was he, he was part of the John Prine upbringing and, and uh, part of Steve Goodman and, and people like that. And, but, but anyway, there you go. It, watching Bob do it at Newport, really. Wow, really? Uh, was really on a six-string guitar. He was a great rhythm player. Yeah, he also plays piano, too. He's a piano player. That's right. That's right. Uh, actually, the last time I saw him, he played more piano than anything else. He really didn't play a lot of guitar. Did you hear his new album? 
Oh yeah, I have. It's fantastic. Oh good, so did we. My my wife yeah. Kim and I have been have been digesting it. And it, boy, digesting is the right word because you know it's it's poetry <laughs> in motion. It's yeah, the whole no, thing it's, is, is including the song about JFK. Oh my god, yeah. Poetry in motion. Boy, when I heard that, I was floored. And everybody that heard it was floored. The whole thing, yeah. You and Bob were both managed by Albert Grossman at the same time. How did that come around? Well, it's just that through Ian and Sylvia, uh, the bat, Ian and Sylvia were a, uh, a wonderful duet from the, uh, the folk revival era who mm -hmm. introduced me to Albert Grossman through my songs. I imagine that you and Bob got to hang out quite a bit. Well, yes, we did. I, I, I became, uh, we became good friends. I learned all kinds of stuff from yeah. him. It was more about attitude. It was more about, about the, the work ethic. It was about, about getting it done, because half the time it was trying to make yourself do it. Right. So I, I had that rub off on, on some other people, too, who learned it from me. You know, if you don't sit down and do the work, it's never going to get done. Right, right. And that stops a lot of people. What do you it do just, when you get stuck? Uh, drink. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I drank till I, was, I, I gave up alcohol in 1982, fortunately. I'm not without sin, but I, I was able to, to beat uh, alcohol. Well, you stopped drinking, you got into canoeing. And you said after your first trip that you'd never do it again, but you actually went like, at least ten more times. How extensive were these canoe trips that you would take? Well, the longest one I was ever on was 33 days. Oh, my gosh. And uh, the shortest one was eight days. And anywhere you want to go in between, there were ten trips. And uh, for me, that was dry out time. That, right. was, that was dry out time because we never took alcohol in, in the bush. I remember one time, though, uh, there's, there's always a sidebar story. I, I carried a 40-ouncer in a, in a food pack and didn't know it. And the guy <laughs> who put the trip together pulled it out at the end of the trip. And I'd be carrying that food pack, and I kept saying, why is this damn thing so heavy? <laughs> You've been carrying it around the whole time. Yeah, I didn't know that there was a 40-ouncer <laughs> in there. And and that was like a, like a 28-day a trip. That was... a. I mean, but northern Quebec, uh, where we went down a river that ran into Hudson Bay. We used to, we had some outrageous trips. We we traveled in the wow. in the far north, where the rivers run north into the, the Arctic Ocean. Uh, in uh, wow. on four of these trips, uh, three other trips that we did went to Hudson Bay and uh, and a wonderful mountain trip right through the northern Rockies. With the whole trip, it was a twenty-seven day trip. Through, through, through Rocky Mountain territory. It was absolutely amazing. You must have and, seen uh, some incredible wildlife. The wildlife was credible. We, we took some wonderful photography. Uh, we had some great photographers with us. I just went for the trip. Right. I, was, I was not an archivist, but some of the people we traveled with were, were really archivally minded in, in some good photography uh, of, of wildlife and... Uh, uh, one uh, river we, we we passed through a place called Virginia Falls, where where the waterfall there is, a, is they say three feet higher than Niagara Falls. Really, it's the highest waterfall in North America. We get into a situation where we got in danger and had to pull out of that one after about eight days. What happened? We were getting into some water that we couldn't, uh, where I didn't have enough freeboard on my canoe. 
We we couldn't make it. We did. We we had too much freight and not enough freeboard. We would have been shipping water. We would have sunk. Like the Edmund Fitzgerald. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a Steve Earle quote in the documentary where he said there was a week where he and Guy Clark were celebrating because everybody in Nashville was telling them they needed to write three minute and 30 second songs. And then Edmund Fitzgerald came out and it was a huge hit. And so they felt vindicated that they could write long story songs finally. <laughs> That's good. I know Steve too. I did it. We did an interview together in uh, New York just a short time ago at the XM there. Nobody knew that that song was going to be a popular song. Uh, I wrote it knowing, though, that a whole lot of people were going to be hearing it. Yeah. And those being the relatives of those men would all be right. hearing it. I, I knew that, and uh, I, I tried to make it as, as uh, get it right in chronological order, for one thing, which I succeeded in doing. And I had, had some, you know, the fourth verse gets into kind of poetic license, you know where you start right. talking about uh, the old cook coming on deck because nobody knows what, what happened there. But the rest of it is all pretty factual. When supper time came, the old cook came on deck saying, fellas, it's too rough to feed you. At 7 p.m., a main hatchway gave in. He said, fellas, it's been good to know you. Captain wired in, he had water coming in, and the good ship and crew was in peril. And later that night, when his lights went out of sight, came the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Well, you guys nailed that one in the studio on the first tape. They got a chance to practice it the day before. I went back home to my studio, and I worked on it all night, and, and went in at 10 o'clock the next morning. We had it nailed by 11 o'clock in the morning. Wow, that's a great feeling when you get it right away like that. Well, we pretty much knew where we were going. Uh, you've been playing with those guys for decades. Seems like you've kept that band together forever. A couple of them are, are no longer treading the planet. But the bass player has been with me the longest, and, and he's been since 1968. That's Rick. And the rest of them came in at various times. The new lead guitar player has only been with me for 10 years. Still, that's way longer than most bands last. Only 10 years. Only 10 years. Yeah, yeah. Terry Terry Clements was a, a great guitar player. He, uh, And so was the guy before him, Red Shea. But uh, Terry played for us for 40 years. Wow. 40 years he played in that. You've been doing this successfully for over 60 years. It's just, uh, that's really unheard of. I yeah, mean, me, me and Bob Dylan both... I, I've had to, to roll about 95 shows down the line uh, because of the pandemic, and uh, if we get a chance, we're going out again. Oh, you will. Um, you've got this new record, obviously. You were going to go out and tour it. It's solo. But you wrote these songs back almost... Uh, 1998, yeah. Yeah. I forgot all about those songs. <laughs> I was going to ask you that. I was moving my office. You know, it, it is solo, though. It's just all guitar and vocal. So that's how we call it, solo. It's real impactful, though. I mean, the first thing that hit me was your rock-solid finger-picking, and you're, like, again, these great Gordon Lightfoot melodies. Oh, we've had about two million streams on it already. It's doing really good. There's been so many people that have covered and recorded your songs. Have you ever figured out how many different versions have been recorded by different artists? Yeah, it's a lot. And it surprises the hell out of me. 
And I'll tell you, the very first people were, were the Kingston Trio and, and Peter, Paul, and Mary. That, that wow. really goes back that far. The wow. Kingston Trio. And, uh, and at the time, I could remember listening to them in high school. It was just like the dawn of the folk revival right. when, when, when they came on strong. And then there was, there was Ian and Sylvia and Peter, Paul, and Mary, and then Bob Dylan. That was what got the whole thing going. And Pete Seeger. And these people were huge in the folk music world. And to hear them cover one of your songs, what did that feel like? That had to have been amazing. Well, hearing it on the hit parade was even more amazing. When I, when I heard, uh, I was waking up and getting out of my bed. I, at this point, my former first wife and I, Rita, were waking up one morning, and I heard it on the radio, on the hit parade, in the first thing in the morning, For Loving Me by Peter, Paul, and Mary. When you hear it on the hit parade, you know that it's climbing the charts. I said, we're going to move out of this basement apartment soon. <laughs> of course, yeah, right. It was a nice apartment, but it was, it was below ground. <laughs> <laughs> and we had and two cold. babies. Oh, wow. Do you have any favorite versions of your songs that have been recorded by anybody else? There are many, many, many of them. I love Barbara Streisand doing If You Could Read My Mind. But mostly I love Elvis for doing it early morning rain. Great song, but great version of it. What a credit that is. In the early morning rain With a dollar in my hand And an aching in my heart And my pockets for the sand We still get mileage out of it. You know, right now we're not working. We've had to cancel all our shows move them all down the road. There's still a, something in the songwriting. Yeah. All that stuff, you know, through the years, it comes in handy when there's no cash flow. Turing is, uh, it sort of looks after itself. We love doing it. Everybody wants to get back to traveling. I think everybody's getting a little stir-crazy at this point. Yeah, there, there's, a lot, there's a lot of us that, that are prepared. You know, last week we had a monster rehearsal here. Uh, for two days, and I, I worked on 42 songs with the, with the guys. Wow. Working with the headsets in the studio. Well, we're going to stream one out there one of these days. There's talk about that. I know that we can do that. I can do it. I have the venue. The business hasn't been looked after yet. Uh, so. Right, right. Thank you so much, Gordon, for your time today. Really appreciate it. All the best, and we can't wait to see you back out on the road when this pandemic clears up. Okay, Rich, thanks a lot, man. Every highway Let me slip away on you Every highway You've seen better days The morning after blues From my head down to my shoes Every highway Let me slip away Slip away on you I'm looking forward to that live stream Gordon was talking about. Hopefully they can get that together sooner than later. I don't know about you, but I've got a serious Jones for some live concerts right about now. If You Could Read My Mind is available on all video streaming platforms. Highly recommend this film for all you Gordon Lightfoot fans out there. 
Take care. See you next time. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.